Glad you could be with us. Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year to you all. Okay, we're, we're going to talk to each other, right? That's, that's what we do. I, I know there's all sorts of different churches out there. In some places you go and a person talks at the front, and I do have to do that, but I like a little feedback, okay? More than snoring. More than snoring. And, um, and I, do, I do wish you a happy new year, and I, I really wish and want it to be happy. But you know this, happiness is never a guaranteed outcome, right? We can't really wish that. I was on my way to church this morning, and I was thinking about this, how true it is. I turned on to, um, I think it's Innisfil Road or whatever it is, and a bus, a bus driver was already having an unhappy day. That bus was perpendicular to the road. I'm just, I, I don't, I mean, no one was hurt, but I just thought, this is weird. They're not having a happy time, and, you know, and I just thought, it's that easy. It just goes wrong. But you might have happiness. If your goal is a better budget this year or to exercise or to spend more time at your cottage if you have such a thing, maybe you want to complete several books or several, several uh, video game quests that you do if that's your thing. Or maybe your plan is to hit all your targets at work. Maybe you can have a happy new year. Maybe you can have a happy new year. But what if your goal is to become or be more obedient to Jesus Christ? What if that's your goal? That decision is going to affect your happiness. The events that we saw happen in Canada at the end of 2021 gave us a happiness-related, urgent question that we have to answer as we head into 2022, and that's this question. How will you, how will you live for God in front of a nation that doesn't share your hope in Jesus Christ? How are you going to do that? How are you going to live for God in front of a nation that doesn't share your hope in Jesus Christ? This is a question that has been nagging at me. It's, it's something that I, I spend my time thinking about because it's different. It's, it's not the same as when I was growing up, and it's certainly not the same as when people before my generation were growing up. Our nation is not thrilled about all that we proclaim is true. There's been a stated divergence from biblically informed, Jesus-modeled Christian values and beliefs Jesus is okay if he's primarily a, 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 a sympathetic, understanding, and supportive friend, but the biblical Jesus as an authority figure no longer fits with our cultural milieu. Many Canadians prefer to define morality on their own terms. You know this. They've become critical of biblical, God-defined ethics and truth so that we who believe in who believe in these things are deemed unscientific and mythological and stereotypical and at times even hateful. And I don't want to be considered hateful. These teeth are too shiny to be considered hateful. But it happens. The world persecutes what we profess. And if, if you're like me, I'm not too happy about that. It doesn't feel good to start off a year when you know those things are happening. The clash between the church and the world is, all, is and always will be over how to respond to the gospel. And even though it's culturally appropriate to say, Happy New Year, the reality is that over the next 12 months and beyond that time, Christians in Canada and around the world will experience disapproval because they profess the hope that is within them. And at those times of persecution, material happiness and, and our health, they're going to be far from our minds. So think, think about this. What will you do if you are persecuted this year? 
What are you going to do if you are persecuted this year because of your faith? Simply being happy at church can't deal with that kind of situation. You must have a real hope. You must have a real hope. The hope that is within you has a spiritual foundation that is more powerful than persecution. Our hope comes from responding to Jesus Christ's invitation. You begin to trust in him as the son of God who forgives your sin, makes you spiritually new, and offers you and supplies you with eternal life. This is our hope. And so no matter what comes to discourage a Christian from their allegiance to Jesus, the hope within them can thrive. I wanted to talk to you today about this hope because this hope is not crushed by criticism. It's not pulverized by persecution. As a diamond is formed under heat and intense pressure, our hope is our spiritual jewel that is made indestructible through the testing of our faith. Do you have hope like that as a jewel in your heart? Do you carry this precious internal gem into this new year with you? Listen, I, I really want us to have this as a church. I want us to have that hope. So today we'll be returning to a, a, a book in the Bible, First Peter. I hope you can find that. We're going to return to a brief study to our study there briefly, so we can look at a great promise that fuels our hope. And it's this: that those who endure suffering while holding on to hope will be blessed. Those who endure suffering while holding on to hope, they will be blessed. Let's look at that together. Turn in your Bibles to First Peter. Chapter 3, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is, should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is a letter that was written to people that were going to suffer as they believed in Jesus Christ. Not everybody, but people were going to, to experience persecution. And this section of Peter's letter totally anticipates that. For believers. Persecution is this word that we talked about often in 2021. Pastors were defining it for us. People were blogging about it. People were trying to understand, are we seeing this? Are we seeing persecution in our day? Is this persecution? Is that persecution? Well, maybe it's not until it's like this. We've had discussions about this. Perhaps you've had that as well. So we need some definitions. The shortest definition I found was this from Merriam-Webster. It says, persecution is to cause to suffer because of belief. Persecution is when you cause someone to suffer because of what they believe. So it's not just Christians that can be persecuted. It's not a, a Christian word necessarily, but it's when we are caused to suffer because of what we believe. That's persecution. And if you study the experience of the New Testament believers, you will realize that the apostles, the ones that started the church off, they totally anticipated persecution. They did this because Jesus told them it would come. In John 15, 20, he said, if they persecuted me, this is Jesus talking, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as you bring this message about me to the world. This gospel message offended the Roman declaration that Caesar was Lord of all. When they said Jesus was Lord, 
People were used to hearing Caesar was Lord. So that was a challenge. It challenged the notions of inequality between men and women. It challenged the notions of inequality between types of people, Jews and Greeks. It challenged the notions of inequalities between slave and free people. So when people believed this new message, this new gospel, they found hope and they found new reasons for confidence where they had none before. It began an uprising in the human spirit. And this revival of the soul has survived over generations and generations of all the attempts through persecution to quell it. See, we learn by reading scripture that persecution doesn't work. And it doesn't work because of this. The church has a secret. Her secret is that she accepts the suffering as inherent to the mission. The church accepts the suffering as inherent to the mission. Persecution provides this unparalleled, opportunity for us to reveal the nature of Christ's incredible power in us. His power is expressed when we embrace and offer forgiveness for sin. It's expressed when we love our enemies. It's expressed when we have patience uh, with people who don't understand what has happened to us. His power is what gives us hope and helps us to survive through pain and loss, cruelty, slander, and rejection. So I've set you up. This is a long intro to that concept. I want us to get practical today. Peter certainly wants us to do that. I have four steps of a strategy that I want to bring out for you from this section of Scripture that we've been looking at. And if, if you've been with us for a while, you know that I began my study in 1 Peter just after I started with you guys in uh, 20, 2016 maybe or 2017. I think the only book that we've taken a longer time to get through was Luke Right, And I, I just got a short one, so that's why they don't give me the long books. But uh, I, I want us to go there. So here's the, here's the first idea in this strategy, that even if persecuted, we show the hope that is in us, within us, when we seek the good of all. That's coming from 1 Peter 3.13. In this passage, Peter notes that for us, generally speaking, no one bothers people who are doing what is helpful. He says this question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The answer is, you already know it. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what, what is helpful? If, if you're doing what is good, who is going to bother you? No one. No one. If you're doing what's helpful, no one's going to bother you. That's the general case. Your boss, your spouse, the police, your parents, other religions, anti-religious people, they don't really bother you. We don't get persecuted for good behavior. It just, it's just not what generally happens. And that's the plan. That's the plan. In, in Jeremiah 29.7, where we have this prophet who was preaching amongst the time when Israel was going to be kicked out of its promised land, and, and people were invading the nations, and they were being taken away to these godless places. God said to Jeremiah, to the people, "'Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile,' And pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare, in the welfare of that city, you will have your welfare. It's an interesting concept that wherever we go as Christians, we actually try to bring good to those places, because as the people around us experience what is good, we also experience what is good. Jeremiah spoke to these kind of nations. He's speaking, in this case, about Babylon, which is this symbolic city of, of the worst of the worst. They're notorious for the wicked things they did. And if it applied to them... It applies to Christians in every generation. Here's the point is this, that we seek the good of all, even in a context 
where the ideas you believe in are openly doubted and criticized and, and there's idols worshiped and everything else. But even if we have that clear, even if we know that, even if that's sort of like already on board for you, we need to remember there's a warning. And here's the warning. We don't think about situations the way God thinks about situations, do we? When it comes to being mistreated, we don't think the way God does. When, when I'm mistreated and when you're mistreated, we tend to think about retaliation. That's the way we go, right? You watch a schoolyard, somebody hits someone, well, the, the kid is most likely to, oh, say thank you. No, they're going to hit the other child back, right? That's, that's our human nature. And we have to remember that even though we're told to seek the welfare of the city, we, we want to sometimes retaliate against those that mistreat us. Jesus must train that kind of stuff out of us. In an example of that, he rebuked two of his disciples, James and John, these brothers that he called the sons of thunder. The story is this, they were on their way to Jerusalem and they had to go through a place called Samaria, Samaria and the Samaritans did not like the Jerusalems. There was a bit of tension between these people. And so when Jesus and his disciples came through, they were looking for a place to stay but the Samaritans wouldn't let them stay there because they knew Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Like, well, we don't like those people, so you can't stay here. James and John, the sons of thunder, they said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, here's what we're going to do. We're going to retaliate. Let us call down fire from heaven and burn these guys up. That's what we want to do. They mistreated you. We're going to show those guys. We're going to burn them. Burn them up, if you don't know my terrible Jamaican accent. Right? We're going to call fire from down there. It got like all Thor-ish. And Jesus said, wait, guys, that is not the way. He says, cool your jets. This is not how we're going to do it. He told him, no, flat out no. That's not the way it's going to go. He called these guys the sons of thunder because they were thunderheads. They were hot-tempered. They were ready to flash this condemnation on these people that rejected their, their faith and their decision to follow Christ. And Jesus' simple response is to say, hey, there's no thunderheadedness needed in my church. He wants your zeal for good, not your enthusiasm for vengeance. That means our behavior, wherever we find ourselves, shouldn't be aggressive. It shouldn't be hostile. It shouldn't be violently rebellious or seditious. If we are zealous for good, we remain engaged. We remain engaged, not passive about this, but engaged in blessing people through our prayers and actions and words, despite their reaction to our faith. Living out your hope in Jesus should never make you a danger to your neighbors or your friends or their workplace, but instead it should make those people thankful for your faith, thankful for your service, thankful for your presence in their lives. You can be, as we go into this ne next year, think about these places of work. You can be a persecuted pastor in a place where they pressure your church to close down. You can be a persecuted teacher working for the government in a place where they pressure you to, to express a morality that's more consistent with political, um, political correctness. You can be a soldier, a persecuted soldier in an army that is supposed to obey the government no matter what. You can be a spouse who lives with someone who doesn't share your faith. You can be a son or a daughter in a family where they don't worship God, but you want to. You can be a citizen in a country that persecutes your faith and zealously seek the good of all. This is possible. God's word proclaims it. The gospel message may be unwelcome, but your actions don't have to create extra problems for you or the church. What does this mean? It means that as we go into 2022, I want you to try to be a blessing to as many people as you can. 
You may have written off the idea that these people need your kindness, that these people need your love, that you need to be good to people because of how they treated you under the guise of you being a Christian in 2021. And you thought, well, that's it. I don't have to bring any type of goodness towards these people as we go forward. That would not be where the scripture's leading us. You need to stay actively engaged for the benefit, for their benefit, as well as Christ's benefit and the reputation of the church. That's the strategy. That's part of the strategy for showing the hope that we have to the world. That's my first point. I got three more. Along with this zeal for good, even if persecuted, we show the hope that is in us when we suffer with confidence. We show the hope that is within us when we suffer with confidence. Now, this point is a bit longer, and I honestly don't really want to start off a new year talking about suffering. I've tried to put this part of the message as far away from from these things as we can, but we have to talk about suffering. We need to talk about suffering. It's there in Scripture, and Peter's letter is devoted to it because those Christians were definitely going to face it. And today, there are people in our world who are suffering in cultures that disapprove of their hope in Christ. It's really happening. And if you haven't discovered this yet, you will. Christians in Canada have been feeling the pressure to conform, and it's been happening in different ways. It's plausible that this is happening because God is preparing the church right here to suffer by first educating us on what persecution really is. And our first lesson has been to realize that persecution is not just losing some of the privileges that we had in bygone eras, back when we had a Christian country. It's different than that. So we might be thinking it's hard here in Canada, but try proclaiming your faith in these countries. You're going to see them on the screen. Between 2019 and 2021, according to the organization called Open Doors that tracks these things, not through open stats because those are hard to collect. They get them through letters and and stories of missionaries on the ground and Christians that meet there and are willing to shine light on this stuff. They track like 50 countries around the world where Christians are persecuted. Over those two years, these five were at the top of the list both years. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. I'm not saying that everybody from those countries is against Christianity, but these are the places where it's potentially the most violent. And where persecution is most violent, you experience things like murders and imprisonment, buildings are destroyed, surveillance is relentless. And to us sitting here in the comfort of this church, it's alarming. It's a world that we don't fully comprehend. The stats, talking about it that way, makes it seem impersonal and far away. So we can say all things, we can act brave, but we haven't experienced the brutality that can come against faith. Canadian Christians, we we suffer in a sophisticated way. In our post-Christian country, we are treated as irrelevant to progress. We are cast aside for political whipping, and we are um, set aside for comedic, comedic flogging. Sometimes I look at my sentences and go, like, why did I put those words together? So I look for a better way of saying this. We're memed. We're memed, right? If you, look, if you go to Google and you say, hey, show me some anti-Christian memes, you get a full page. And I'm sure there are links to that. I found one that I actually laughed at because sometimes it's good to laugh at ourselves. I, I, I'm not going to show it on the screen. There's no point in doing that. But the, the, there was a one-liner. They usually are. It was, it, it was over, top, over top of a baptism. And the line of the critic said, uh, instead of being born again, why not just grow up? 
And I know it, it seems like an insult, but I thought about, you know, in some cases that's actually worth reminding us as Christians. Instead of just talking about being born again, sometimes we need to mature. But this is the kind of persecution we're facing. Our persecution is largely about being sidelined and left out of consideration and treated as though we are intellectually immature, intellectually inferior. I don't like that. Even if I have to admit that in some cases, comments like that are justified. There are lots of perspectives on what the church is like. Here's another one that's from Wikipedia, you know, that great research space that's supposed to be kind of neutral. That's why I pilled it. Here's what they've shown us. Scholars have proposed that, proposed that church institutions decline in power and prominence, read that as influence, in most industrialized societies like Canada, except in cases where religion serves some function in society beyond merely regulating the relationship between individuals and God. It's that beyond merely regulating the relationship between individuals and God that struck me. It's like this. Hey, what you need to do as a church is you need to have some social services. You need to have some social influence without having spiritual authority. We want your help. We don't want your morality. So this means when you choose to obey God rather than following a cultural norm that is entangled with what the Bible says is sin, you will, you have to. You're going to get criticism from those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord. And even if you have been doing good to all, it's not going to stop the criticisms from coming. It's not, going to, it's not going to stop the reaction to the claims that there is another way to live and a better authority to follow. This is why Jesus, who healed the sick and honored the poor and fed the hungry and welcomed the marginalized, this is why he was persecuted and killed. It's because he claimed that he was the son of God and that the way to truly live was to follow him. So all that is to help us understand that persecution is our culture's or any culture's attempt to stamp out the threatening idea that Jesus is Lord by causing those who hold that idea to suffer. Suffering, for that reason, is not something any of us want to experience. We're not those kind of people. We don't want to bring it on. We're not asking for it. So Peter writes in verse uh, in verse 14, but even if you should suffer, even if you're doing good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. That's a future blessing. That's something that's supposed to come. And, and it's difficult to hold on to a promise that's yet to come to us. You feel suffering now. You feel the marginalization of your faith now. You feel the pressure to conform right now but you wait to experience that blessing later? If you're like me, you don't want a later blessing. Right? If, I, if I do good and I eat all my peas at supper, I want dessert then. I don't want to wait. I, want, I don't want a later blessing. I want a now blessing. Do you guys pray like that? The Lord bless me later. Lord, all those good things, bring it on in 2025. No, we want now blessing, especially when we're suffering. A now blessing would prevent suffering. That's how I would pray. So we pray, God, protect me from suffering today. Limit the persecution that we're going to face. Stop it from happening. We can pray this way. There's nothing wrong with that. And we should pray this way. However, when the persecution continues and happens anyways, we need to remember that this promise is the answer to our prayers before we even asked for them. 
It teaches us that God's plan includes our suffering. We know that Jesus probably felt in his flesh that he didn't want to be on the cross, enduring all that pain, but he stayed there. He stayed there because he understood that it was his suffering had a purpose. And our suffering, thankfully, is different than Jesus Christ's. It's different than his, but it requires the same confidence that Jesus had as he hung on that cross for us. That confidence is this, that your suffering will never be in vain. It accomplishes important aspects of God's plan. Your suffering is never in vain. It it accomplishes important aspects of God's plan. Let's look this up. There's a promise in this that I want you to see. Peter is passing on to us a promise from Jesus Christ when he wrote these words to us. He's looking back to what Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 11, actually verse 10. I didn't put it on the screen. I want you to see it in your Bibles. I want you to see it on your phone or wherever you might have it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, verse 10, sorry. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can memorize that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God is promising people who suffer for persecution heaven through what Jesus says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a promise that came right from Jesus Christ to his disciples, to the apostles, to the early church, and comes to us. And it means that we can hold on to that promise. You have to hold on to those things if you're going to suffer. The confidence in suffering is precisely because of Jesus' promise of blessing. It's this magnificent trade. It's unbelievable, really, that you have temporary persecution for eternal blessing. There's not a person or a dissuasive tactic, not a, not a persecution measure, measure that can prevent what Jesus has promised you to come. That's why Peter continued to say, don't be afraid of them, don't be troubled. Peter lifted that statement from his own history, his people's history, when they faced an invasion from the Assyrians who were going to attack and kill them and, and cause them to doubt God. And under suffering, we learn from reading the Old Testament that God is always at work. He prepares his remnant. He moves his plan along. He's not allowing his enemies to succeed at snuffing out the hope that is in Christ and in God. And God is still doing that today. Whatever comes to us in 2022, God is still doing that today in Canada and throughout the world. Our confidence is not a guarantee of safety. Our confidence is in a guarantee of salvation. because we follow Christ as Lord. We have Jesus' promise, and nothing can touch that. It's locked up for you. It's yours now because Jesus wanted you to have it, and nothing they did to him and nothing they can do to his people can change that. Stephen Nichols, someone writing about this confidence, wrote this. He said, someday we will be like Jesus. That's our hope, but it's not a hope that we put on the shelf. It's not a hope that sends us into a cave It's a hope that sends us out into the world 
with confidence. We can be confident in God, confident in his word, confident in Christ, confident in the gospel, and confident in hope. I appreciate people who write things like that. Sometimes I wake up and I think, I need a little bit of confidence. And I think this, why, this point has been the hardest one to, to work through. It's because I wonder what it will be like for me if I actually come up across some persecution. I'm in a pretty sheltered position. I preach Christ from a stage to a bunch of Christians. There's not a lot of danger in that unless I go too long. And then you persecute me for a different idea, interfering with your lunch. But, um, but none of us can know for sure how we will handle persecution if it comes. We don't know that. We don't know that. I don't know what it'd be like if persecution meant that you would lose a job or lose a marriage or have your children turn away from you or have your parents turn, turn you out. I don't know what it'd be like to go through those feelings. And I hope I never will. I hope you never experience that. We don't know. But if we read scriptures, we see that God knows. I think he makes choices about who, who experiences the worst kinds of persecution. We, we can see how God interacts with people from stories like Job's story or, or uh, who suffered at Satan's hands to Peter who was called to serve and reportedly he died uh, upside down on a cross. Uh, to men and women who were remembered in Hebrews chapter 11, you can read that, that chapter of the Bible and see that people suffered all sorts of cruelty for their faith. And there are going to be people this year who are attacked and killed and detained and imprisoned. God's going to incorporate their suffering into his plan. He does that by his choice. I don't know if we're ever ready for it, but I'm so thankful that he provides the extra confidence that we need when the time comes. I believe that. I believe that even if I was fearful today, if God called me into persecution, he would supply me with what I need to honor him. I hope you can carry that confidence forward. It's a big boast. So we need a third part in our strategy. This confidence that we have that might make us seem, you know, that's strange that you guys would be like, okay, we got some persecution coming. Let's, let's go. I'm ready, right? That could seem like empty boasting. So even if persecuted, we show the hope that, it, that is within us when we serve Jesus sincerely. When we serve Jesus sincerely. Listen, you've made this decision. Maybe you've made one resolution. Megan, I know why people didn't want to answer your question. It's because when you hold up your hand to say, that's what I plan to do, people, you kind of make a contract with the public, right? So you don't say anything. You have the same plan, but you just won't speak it out. That way, if you don't keep up with your exercise, nobody knows, right? Well, you know, when we come to church, we're not really hiding our intentions. So how do people know you are sincere in your faith? How will people know that you intend to live more for Christ this year, even if it's hard? How do people know that? Well, they know when you put up with unjustified suffering. They can tell. Suffering is a process by which sincerity is revealed. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary for China Inland Mission. I don't know if he's still famous today, but he, he, he definitely was. He's responsible for opening up the mission field there. He wrote about suffering, and his, his, his testimony, he did remarkable things trying to prepare himself to go. He wrote this about following in Jesus' footsteps and carrying his cross. He says, in his footsteps are rejection and brokenheartedness, persecution and death. There are not two Christs. There's not an easygoing one for easygoing Christians and a suffering one for exceptional believers. There's only one Christ. 
Are we willing to follow his lead? That's a hard question. It's a, it's a, a hard thing to understand how, how to get to that spot. But I think Taylor was onto something. He understood the link between serving and suffering and sincerity. And Peter knew this too. And so he wrote to the church, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In the core of who you are, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him aside. What's he saying? He's saying that sincerity in your faith matters. If Jesus is not Lord in your heart, then he's not Lord of your life. You have not found sincerity in your Christianity. And it won't matter what you say or do. If you're not sincere, it's all essentially for a show. It's all theater. Suffering in a true Christian's life, someone who has set Christ apart as Lord in their heart, as holy, suffering exposes that sincerity by opening windows for people to see right into their hearts. Sincerity becomes the difference maker in their testimony as they talk about Jesus Christ. Try to think about how this works out, and I was thinking about how much my kids probably believe that their mom loves them, and they struggle to understand that about me. And I, I say that as a bit of a joke, but one of us has suffered a lot more to bring them into the world. <laughs> the women laugh first. Right? My suffering on the day my kids came was to try to bear hanging out in a hospital room. But my wife was in labor, right? And if, you, if you've seen that, if you, if you have any sense of what that's like, right, when you see a woman labor to bring her child into the world or you see parents laboring to bring their child through the world, you believe in their love a lot more when you see them embrace them and take the baby in their arms and say, I love you. You're important to me. Right, that suffering adds something to the testimony to make it believable. It, it adds credibility. It keeps them from the charge of being hypocritical. Sincerity is proof that you have met uh, life-changing love. Sincerity is proof that you've met life-changing love. And so we applaud sincerity in the church. We love it when people talk about it from the, from the baptismal tank, and we encourage you to share it. And it's Peter who knows a thing or two about the importance of sincerity because Peter was someone who was prone to boasting. It was him that said, Jesus, you're going to the cross, well, we're going to be right there beside you every step of the way. I'm never going to leave you, Jesus. And then when his opportunity came up to face some challenges, he left Jesus. He didn't mean to, he didn't know, but he wasn't ready. He didn't have that sincerity yet. And he, he left. And I'm not wanting to harp on him for that, but I want to show you how Jesus responded to that. Jesus came to reinstate Peter's ministry, and he asked him a question about sincerity. He said to Jesus, he, Jesus said to Peter three times, do you, do you know the question? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter had said, Lord, you know I do. He was exposing a window into Peter's heart to help Peter see this sincerity that was sincerity that was needed to serve him. One definition of sincerity reads this: to be sincere is to be free from pretense or deceit, proceeding from genuine feelings. Is that an accurate description of how you worship Christ today? Are you here from something 
from a sense in your heart that is free from pretense or deceit and proceeds from genuine feelings is, do you love God and love people because Jesus first loved you? Maybe you've made some big boasts about being able to do that and you found that it's been difficult to live up to them. I want to remind you that Christ wants your sincerity, not your bravado. When you're sincere, you're not just going through the motions. It's not just ritual. Christianity is actually nothing when it's not fueled from a desire to worship Christ that's starting deep within your heart. So as we go into a time, perhaps, I can't promise you that persecution's come, and I hope it doesn't. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm reading the times the wrong way. But if we're going in that, we need to have Christ set apart in our hearts as Lord. It's far too easy for us to fool ourselves while we're sitting comfortably in our Christianity. We think we're devoted. We, we think we're dedicated. But the pressure and the testing and the resistance and the risk, that's what's going to reveal the sincerity. And if Peter and those disciples that walked right with Jesus for three years, if they lacked the sincerity necessary to go through it all, as Jesus was going to the cross, we are probably not going to do much better until we have had our own periods of testing and trial and, and, and those opportunities that make us dependent on the gift of the Holy Spirit. So perhaps we're better at boasting than going through it at this point in our lives. But don't despair. It's Jesus' ministry in your life that develops your sincerity. He's the one that gives you the Spirit. He's the one that recognizes the love that you have deep in your heart for Him, and He's the one that calls you to serve Him through it. And your response to His sacrifice uh, and calling starts from your heart and moves outward into your actions. Not from this boast, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I go to such and such a church. Oh, I totally love people and I love God. That's starting from the outside and coming back in. It doesn't work that way. The insincere way is all about hype. The sincere way is all about the hope that is in you. We need to be sincere. The fourth part of the strategy is this. Even if persecuted, we show the hope that is in us when we share the gospel sensitively. So if we're in a context, which Peter was in, where, where people are going to be hostile to the gospel, he says we need to be prepared for critical questioning. And while we might be angry when someone brings a question to us about our faith, we still need to give an answer. So Peter wrote to these people saying, to be prepared to give that answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope within you. Then he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, so even as they insult you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. These verses put the whole strategy together. It's simply this. Under pressure, we as Christians, we continue to do good to all, especially to those who persecute us, confident that the suffering exposes our sincerity of faith and opens doors for us to speak credibly with, with sensitivity about Jesus' power to change our lives. That's the strategy that Jesus started when he sent out his disciples into the world to build the church. And that's the message that must echo from our mouths and our lives right now. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we have seen people who call themselves Christians take a very aggressive posture 
as they talk to the world about their faith. Sometimes not even talking about Jesus, sometimes just talking about how much their rights have been offended. Their tone drowns out the love of Jesus. Their anger is all that people hear. Perhaps you're one of these outspoken people. Perhaps you're someone who, for you, the, the rage has boiled over and you've said some things and you've just felt you had to get them out there. This verse, this set of verses reminds us that we need to be thinking about what we sound like. We need to be mindful that at every stage we represent Jesus Christ in this gospel. And Jesus wants us to convey his love, not his anger. Any indignation we have about the way we've been treated, it needs to be a, a secondary or some much lesser treated subject as we talk to the world about the gospel. So we need help with something like this. And, and one of the steps we can do is we're preparing to give an answer in a situation like that where, where someone has mistreated us, but we need to speak to them about the gospel is we need to pray. We need to pray for the people that persecute us. Some of us are good at praying about people that persecute us. That might be the way we tend to pray. Lord, you know them. And we pray that something might happen to them, but we need to pray for them, praying that God would consider them fa favorably before we speak to them about the hope that we have. It was Jesus who told his disciples to do this. Matthew 5, just a little bit further from that verse that we, I gave you the promise. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. None of this is easy. None of this is going to be easy. So it's why we need to be told to be sensitive as we preach the gospel. We need to be aware of our tendencies to bury the, the message under our anger, under our anger and, and instead argue against the criticisms. But when we are saved, we are filled and changed by the Holy Spirit of God so that we can actually represent Christ, so that we can be like him as he went to the, towards the cross, so that we can bless people, so that we can love people, that we can forgive people, that we can continue to minister even though they mistreat us because of our faith. It's the persecution of our faith unusually, in an unexpected way, the persecution of the faith of people who continue to live like Christ that creates this intersection of investigation. It opens the door for us to speak about the gospel at a time when people are going to listen. And when they listen, they can be changed. So what an opportunity we have before us as we go into 2022. Because people are critical of the gospel. They're critical of the church, and maybe they're going to become critical of you. People may ask you new questions like, why are you still going to church? Or, why are you wasting your time reading that Bible? Why aren't you out enjoying yourself a little bit more? Why are you holding yourself to those standards? No one else is. You look foolish. You look awkward. You're a fundamentalist. You're too religious, and so on. Don't you want us to accept you? Don't you want to fit into the crowd? Don't you want our pressure and our persecution to stop? You're called to give an answer to that. So three questions to ask yourself before you give that answer as you prepare to say something into that moment. Coming right from this text. First of all, is what you're going to say, be, is it going to be reasonable? Is it going to be reasonable? Uh, is your answer thought through? It has to be. 
It can't just be something that flies out of you in anger. Is your answer defendable? Can you, can you, can you explain it? Can, it? can it make sense? Does it have some logic to it? See, when you give sensitive testimony, when you think about the people that have to hear what you're going to say, people can't just dismiss what you're saying because it came out in anger. So often we've heard about people leaving Facebook and leaving social media because they just can't stand the ranting that's on there. It's not convincing anybody to turn to Christ, is it? But when people answer out of this place, God uses it. So for you, when you get an opportunity to answer, you have to have something better than, uh, well, this is the way I was raised. I've been to church my whole life, that's why I go. Or I've always been a believer. Or this makes my life better now, or this makes my parents happy. Those aren't answers that convince people to serve Christ. Is your answer going to be reasonable? What about this one? Is your answer tactful? Your tone, is it sensitive? Whether you write it or say it. It should be gentle. It should show that, show that you're still in control of your emotions and your thoughts and your words. It shouldn't be caustic. It should show respect for the people who are trying to understand the way you live and have a genuine question for, I don't get why you would do it that way. And we have to give this answer to people that make us feel miserable at times. Just because they don't accept our faith. How do you do that? We have to anticipate who you might be talking to this year. It could be people we've mentioned, a boss, a spouse, someone who holds your paycheck in their hand. How are you going to answer that question? You should write out your answer, prepare it, pray about it, be ready to give it. Is your answer reasonable? Is it tactful? And finally, is your answer faithful to Christ, not to your own anger? Your answer shouldn't create problems between you and God. It shouldn't create problems for, for Christians. Your answer should be able to keep your conscience clear. It should be in line with your good behavior. It should never be you giving in to sin. That's the ministry we have in a context where persecution is possible. And when you can give the same answer to people about your belief, whether you're thriving in your Christianity or suffering because of it, whether it's a happy new year or a horrible one, you're preaching the gospel from the hope that is within you. I can't think of a, a better way for us to kind of proclaim that hope than to, to have some time of communion together. It's a moment where people who have come to this conclusion about Jesus Christ that, that only he is the one who gets us back on track with God. Not our actions, not our connection with the church, but Christ because he's the Son of God, Christ because he's the Lamb of God, Christ because he died on the cross, and Christ because he rose again. Only him. So if you believe that, communion is for you. And we think about it, yes, it's a bit of a party. We get to have this great relationship with God, but first, the emblems of communion, the bread and the juice, they remind us of the suffering. The bread for Jesus' broken body the juice, the wine, the color of it for the blood that was shed on our behalf. So on the way in and at home, hopefully you have these things prepared. You received your cup. If you've never done this with us before, that both things are there. The bread's on top under the little piece of plastic. You have to take that off. The juice is under there. As we take these, I want you to go back to that question I asked you at the beginning. How are you going to live for Christ in front of a nation that doesn't share your hope? What if you were persecuted this year? 
the way we're going to go forward is always on the basis of hope. So as we take these, I want us to be expressing that hope. Look at the bread. Remember it's Jesus' body. Let's eat it together now in remembrance of him. the Jews. There's this verse in scripture that says to the church, you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. And it's such a challenge to us to remember that there's no one who has suffered on behalf of the church more than Jesus Christ. And he survived it all. That's for us too. Let's drink this together in his name. pray with me. Father, these things are hard. They're heavy. As I said, Lord, we want a happy new year, but we're not guaranteed these things. But Lord, we have your hope, and that's a guarantee. It's based on your promise. It's based on your love to us through Jesus Christ, something that can never change. And Lord, we know that Christians around the world who are suffering under your name right now, Lord, they have that same hope and you will not disappoint them. And Lord, you won't disappoint us either. So God, prepare us as a church. Help us to love you, to proclaim your word, to stay on that message through it all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank you guys for coming today. On the way out, we ask that you just help us as we continue to do our part to, to make sure that people stay healthy. Um, observe a little physical distancing as you go. If It's better if you want to make, beat someone today to embrace your Canadian side and have a chat in the parking lot. Um, you know, thank you for leaving your masks on and everything like that. All these are efforts, practical efforts, to remind us that we're in this together. And we do it, even though it's a little bit of suffering for us, we do it because we are loved. And so that's our reminder to you. You are loved.